Scratch Talking Heads frontman David Byrne live at Boston's Museum of Science on May 8th. David will be appearing to talk about what for centuries scientists and philosophers have called the eel question. Much of these mysterious creatures' life cycle remains a mystery even in our advanced scientific age. David will be joined by perhaps our greatest cultural authority on the eel question, Patrick Svensson, author of the acclaimed Book of Eels. Limited tickets remain, so please get yours at singforscience.org events. Sing for Science is made possible in part by a grant from the Simons Foundation. Today's episode was recorded live with our guests in Brooklyn, New York, and with me hosting remotely from upstate New York. Don't forget to check out our other episodes with guests like Earth Eater and Mac DeMarco, so please subscribe to Sing for Science on your podcast platform of choice. Nostalgia allows you to relive the past in your brain. So, you know, something that happened to you when you were 17, when you think about it, it's not just in the past anymore. It's coming back into your present because you're thinking about it in that moment. And that is an effect on you psychologically and like neurally in your brain too. Mm-hmm. And that's how you can study it. You can study it because it expresses itself in the present, even though it's about the past. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientists' area of expertise. Today we'll be speaking with Sean Marshall, best known as the artist Cat Power. Sean's voice is one of the most hauntingly beautiful of her generations, and the timeless sound of her 10-plus albums spans folk, soul, and beyond. Cat Power's latest project pays homage to Bob Dylan's historic 1966 Royal Albert Hall concert album. Song for song, Sean recreated Dylan's performance in its entirety last year at the Royal Albert Hall and has released it as a live album entitled Cat Power Sings Dylan. Also joining us is Cornell University neuroscientist and nostalgia expert Hetvi Doshi. Hetvi works at Cornell's Affect and Cognition Lab, where she researches the mechanisms, effects, and neural correlates of the emotion we call nostalgia. Working in a lab context, Hetvi studies how emotions interact with sensory input like smells, food, and music to produce the feeling of nostalgia. A growing body of scientific evidence has emerged that suggests nostalgia has the capacity to improve not just our health, but also social cohesion with one another. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is Cat Power Sings Dylan, the neuroscience behind our emotional connection to the past. Hello, Sean and Hetvi. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Hello. So I guess the best place to start, Sean, I just read your interview in Vogue, where you paint a very vivid picture of your relationship, not just to Bob Dylan, but to the Royal Albert Hall itself. I mean, at least through your eyes as a 23-year-old in the 90s. So could I trouble you to regale our listeners with the telling of that experience? The regalia? (laughs) Yeah, so I, first time I was in London, I was 23, 
and I stayed at this hotel called the Columbia Hotel, and it's on Hyde Park. Coincidentally, just before the pandemic, I was able to open up a summer concert series I opened up for Neil Young and Bob Dylan in that same mm. park, you know, years later. But anyway, when I was 23, I walked through the park, you know, had no idea where I was going. And I came through the park to the other side of the park, and I decided to take a right. And I walked and walked and walked. And I saw the um, the building, the structure. I saw the the words like, on the side of the building, Royal Albert Hall. You know, I basically loved Dylan since I was very young, but when I saw Don't Look Back, I was either 19 or 20, the documentary Don't Look Back, sure. about Dylan during that tour in London. And uh, I just sort of like was just pretending, you know, smoking my cigarette and just kind of pretending in my mind that like no one was there, but I was just leaning up against the building pretending that it was 1966 and that Bob was going to open the door and that I was going to say, hey, man, can I watch the sound check? And then in my mind, I like went in with him and I went in and like became like, you know, his girlfriend or something in my mind. So I did that for a few years whenever I'd visit London and stay at that at that hotel, the, the Columbia House. Can I ask what you were feeling when you were there, like in your body? In my body, I was feeling connected to him. I was feeling like, because I think I moved around a lot as a kid. I loved the nature and my imagination was very, I could like very easily pretend. Yeah. And I pretended all kinds of things. But I think that when, you know, when I, I felt like I was connected to him just because I was imagining it. Oh, that's, yeah. The only reason I asked that is because Nostalgia is also like, it, you can feel it like coming up in you, yeah. you know, sometimes when you were like, I can so see myself standing in that place with him, even though I've never probably met him. I hadn't met him at that um, point. Absolutely not. Uh, and imagination is a very powerful mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you know, Bob. Yeah, Sean? I met him in 2007 backstage in Paris. And then I'm after I announced that I was doing the show, he announced that he was playing the same cities and I was lucky enough to coincidentally be staying at the same hotel and I got to, to say hello and he got to say good to see you and I got to see him play the next night on Halloween of last year and it was the best I'd ever seen him sing. Are there certain Dylan songs that you can listen to and sort of be transported to that time you first heard them or to a period of your life when you were listening to them a lot? Yeah, definitely. I had, there was this record I got, I think I was 17, and I'd never seen it before. It was called Another Side of Bob Dylan. Just by the way the cover looked, I thought, oh, maybe it'll be like real simple, like Billie Holiday. Maybe there won't be a lot of instrumentation. And so I played the uh, To Ramona. And as a girl, as a young girl, we grew up, you know, with a lot of social construct that doesn't speak for us in film, in school, in religion, in home, you know, in the neighborhood and stuff at work. There's a lot of places where we don't have anyone that speaks up for us or that speaks to us. Um, as acceptance or whatever words I'm trying to say. But anyway, so I heard this song at 17 and um, 
I still, when I hear it, I, I just, I feel so thankful that I heard it at such a young age because I never have heard a man sing so eloquently, uh, like protectively about a, about a woman before. And when you hear that now, are you feeling that same greenness or vulnerability as a 17 year old? Yes. Being able to not feel any tension in those arenas mm -hmm. I was mentioning, being able to not feel that tension um, and that anxiety and that responsibility and that overthinking and that self-protection, that guardedness, you know, hearing a song like that is being able to relax in that way and feel like, don't worry about it. Yes, I definitely feel like, oh, I can relax when I listen to that For, to this day. And I really think women, young girls should listen to that. But women, you know, that identify as women, you know, should listen to that because there's, I'm just grateful to him for putting that down in a song for us or for whoever he was writing it to. And it might like even have had a bigger impact on you because you were so young then. Like, you know, the things that happened to you developmentally really stay with you even as you're growing up um, and become a full adult with children yourself. And so the fact that it's able to have that same effect on you that it had when it was 17, it also means it came to you at the time in life when you're just learning so much mm -hmm. and it's all like imprinting on yourself. Yeah. Um, and then it stays with you. Did you have that too when you were young? Um, I Yeah, I was actually talking about this with a friend today where um, I remember the first time I heard Taylor Swift's love story. Uh -huh. I was in grade four. <laughs> And I can imagine it in my head where I was. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I'm able to recreate it with so much detail, mm -hmm. like just really goes to say how much effect it had on me. Do you still feel the same way right now when you hear that song? Yeah, and like it's not like, yes, I, I, I like her music, but um, that for that song for me, it's more about that emotion, that memory, that uh -huh. like feeling in that time just that like she taught you something. Yeah, or like, it just like thinking. I was having such a good time with my friends and we were just walking and it just like is a sign of a good time. Mm -hmm. And for you, it like sounds like it was a sign of a time you could relax and like just ignore everyone else. Yeah. Hetvi, <laughs> yeah. if any any of the things that I've asked of of Sean and what she's talked about in terms of her experience thinking about Bob Dylan being at Royal Albert Hall, hearing that song when she was 17, I don't know if any of those questions would pass muster in your lab, but if they did or come close, how would you interpret them? Um, I'm not going to therapize. So, you know, I'm not going to break down the experience, but there's like so many different characteristics of your experience that are so reflective of nostalgia and its emotion. So like the one thing that I think is really cool is you recreating the album so like there's this technical term and it's called <laughs> restorative nostalgia which is when you I try like that. you try to recreate the thing that you're nostalgizing for oh, that's like and a, it, it's like going back Tarantino. home yeah you know it's like when you miss home you go back home that's like restorative mm -hmm. nostalgia and in you restoring his album you not only like brought something old back to life but you also like became a part of the collective memory around Bob Dylan. And nostalgia is so much about 
you as a person, but also how you as a person fit with other people. So your individual memory of Bob Dylan, but also how everyone else feels about him. Like, I'm sure you did this because you also recognize his impact on people all around the world. Mm -hmm. And you were like, you know what? I'm not the only one who feels this way. Let me share it. And he's alive. And I wanted to do it because he's on earth. He's walking around doing what he does. And, you know, a lot of things come out after someone's gone. And I really wanted to do it while he's here. Yeah. I'm and sorry, it's also like a way of expressing your own love. Like, you know, it's also on some level deeply personal, I'm yes. assuming for you, that it's it's showing this person that, oh, you had such a big impact on me. This is how I'm going to show my love to you, that I'm going to like recreate your album. People express love in a very different way, yeah. right? So like one of the things that I study is food nostalgia. And Ooh. especially after moving away from home, oh I miss gosh. home food, right? And so one of the ways in which... you can't cook, can you? Uh, yeah, like, so, I mean, you know, when I love cooking, it just takes me forever because I like experimenting oh, yeah, and yeah, I like yeah. like exploring and the kitchen is a mess and I'm like, God, mm, I can't do good. this. Good, <laughs> a messy kitchen is a um, good food. But the way I think I show my love for my mom now that I'm away from her is by trying to make mm. her dishes, you know? It's like, this is how I stay connected with you even though I am no longer with you. And that is such a big part I of nostalgia. I love that. I do the same thing with my grandmother. When she, when she passed, I was trying to, you know, do the biscuits. There's no way. Was, I can't do it the way she yeah. does it. And yet you try. Because that, that's know. how you stay connected to that person. There was so much love in that food. Yeah, like when someone makes food for you when you're growing up, it is definitely a sign of like security. Like, mm-hmm. you know what? I trust you to give me food that's safe for my body. And that yeah. creates a connection to that that's person. True. And, you know, we don't think about food and emotions always in the positive light in media, especially, you know, you talk about like emotional eating and don't eat when you're sad and stuff. Yes. But it makes sense for us to have emotions about food. That's so we true. eat three times a day yeah, or more. <laughs> yeah. And we eat with people we love. Yeah. yeah. You usually don't like sit That's down true. to eat with someone That's you hate. So true. <laughs> yeah. Where I'm from in the South, soul food, you can go in any restaurant and get like the classic soul food, which is delicious and it's real specific you know so there's so much love in there well so you're both you're talking about this idea of displacement which comes up in the research i've read so can that apply to both place and time i mean here we are in new york sean you're from the south het v you're here in the states from india and we're talking about this really uh hallowed ground time period with uh mid-60s early bob dylan like it seems displacement can that apply to both time and place and what's the difference there how do you look at those as a researcher there's this person svetlana boyam and she wrote this book called the future of nostalgia and she's a really good scholar she is not on the experimental side of things she was more in anthropology and understanding ethnographic studies and so on so understanding people and she said this one line where she was like nostalgia exists in a long distance relationship and I think that line really captures so much that the way it's defined even in modern times and was defined previous is that it's a longing for the past. You know, it's bittersweet. It's not all positive. It's after something has usually passed. It's a sense of irretrievable loss. Like, you know, there's something that's been lost that you can 
probably never get back. It comes from longing. It's such a weird emotion that, you know, you can feel happy and sad for lots of random things. Mm -hmm. And probably you and I can feel happy about the same thing or sad about the same thing. But what I'm nostalgic for, you're probably not nostalgic for it at all. Really? And that's because it's from our life history. Like, you know, your grandmom's biscuits, you yeah. must love them. <laughs> but for me, it's like my mom's um, lentils and rice, you know, mm-hmm. like it's such a different yeah. trigger for both mm-hmm. of us. But the way we feel is so similar to each other. And so that's like nostalgia is such a big memory part. Mm-hmm. But when does memory come into play when it's in the past? Um when does memory come into play? Like when it's in the past, like, you know, it becomes a memory when it's like no longer with you. And then it's like the way you relive that is because you think about no. it again. You have that memory again. Do, do you know about EDMR or? Oh, EMDR. Yes. Yeah, EMDR. Uh, the therapy method. Yeah. Um, does that, that has something to do with nostalgia, right? Interesting. So I don't know if I can speak scientifically to EMDR, though I do have personal experience with it. Um, But I've actually never put them together in the same bucket. So maybe maybe it's something I can think about. But I get your point about EMDR. It is also about memories. But one thing that I was, you know, that that Matt asked is that, like, how do you study something so ephemeral, like something you can't even like place your fingers Ah. on? Um, so there's this very interesting thing about the brain, okay? Yeah. Um, and it's something I think as scientists, we kind of make fun of sometimes. The one thing to know is that at all times, you're using every part of your brain. It's not like right now in this moment, I'm only using 10% of my brain. Yeah. I'm always using every single part of it. Yeah? Question. Yes. What happens when you're, you, I don't even know what this is called, but when you're using your brain and you can sense that you and the other person are thinking together at the same time. Mm-hmm. You're talking and we're both understanding what each other is saying, but you sense that you guys are also thinking without words on a different level. Okay, so that's a little tangential, but I do have a slight yeah. answer for that, is that there are some studies on brain synchrony yeah. and like how brain waves can sometimes sync up when people are having conversations. Yeah. So there's a lot that I know, but there's also a lot that I don't know. And this is one of those things that I don't know much about. But I would think that reasonably it might be happening because you and I are probably talking about the same concept or you Mm -hmm. and I are engaged in the same kind of task, which is talking. Because even though your brain is active as a whole, there are like certain parts of the brain that support certain processes. Mm -hmm. And so if you and I are doing the same kind of task, which requires the same process, we might have similar activity to each other during that time, which is also how you can study brains. And so to go back to the question of like, what lights up in the brain? I put it in quotes only because it's not that simple, but for now we'll stick to that. There's not been that much research on nostalgia and the brain in all honesty, but the little bit that has been there, they show that, you know, systems that are with your memory, so your hippocampus, which is like really known for time travel, that you going back to you being 17, reward systems. So like, you know, the ventral striatum, the ventral tegmental area, substantia nigra, like all these dopamine systems. Reward systems. So what are some other examples of rewards? Oh, yeah. Um, food, sex, drugs. Um, like really primary rewards that would cause laughter. a dopamine cycle. Uh-huh. Yeah, laughter. <laughs> um, I don't do drugs. I don't have sex. You eat food. Drink. You do music. I do eat a little um, bit. When you perform. I, okay, laughter. when you perform. Oh, 
I would have sex. But there's such a thing as laughter meditation. Sign me up. Oh, it's the comedy store in Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. Okay, so reward systems. Yes, it activates rewards because, you know, it can be rewarding to eat something that your mom used to make or it can be rewarding to listen to Dylan's music. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing that actually I'm studying, which hasn't really been studied before, is how nostalgia is almost felt in the body. A lot of research has been done on memories, but nostalgia also involves other processes in the brain that are not just about memory. And like a really good example that is food again. Like, you know, when you eat something you love, Mm. it's not just your metabolic system, it's also your emotional brain, your cognitive brain Mm. that are interacting with each other. And so some of the new areas that we're interested in studying that are regions of interest are the hypothalamus. You know, we usually think of the hypothalamus as like, oh, okay, it makes me hungry, it doesn't make me hungry. But the hypothalamus receives input and feedback from memory systems and social systems in the brain. And so your metabolic system, your food is influenced by how you feel for it. That by might the have something to do with uh, smoking and drinking alcohol being some sort of addiction. I wonder if that's there because you need something to... I wasn't breastfed, so I wonder if people who were addicts, if they weren't breastfed. I'm not an addict, though. I just mm-hmm. have a ton of stress. Yeah. But uh, I'm curious if that um, is related to the hippopotamus. Um, <laughs> sometimes nostalgia works in a way where if you're threatened, like let's say your social identity is threatened or you're feeling away from home, so you're feeling lonely. You know, that is that is also a threat to the system that you're feeling lonely. You might crave foods that sustain that social connection without the, being an actual person with you. Mm. And that's one thing that nostalgia can do, right? Like if Fatting I feel like food. I'm away from my home, how do I feel closer to my home? By eating the food. Filling up the pain. Exactly. And so, yeah, there's like two mechanisms. I think what you're also talking about is comfort foods. Mm -hmm. You know, like when you just want to feel full, that can also be a different but overlapping mechanism with nostalgia. It's actually kind of interesting. One of the first studies I did, we tried to show that comfort foods are different from nostalgic foods. It's making me cry. (laughs) We We tried to show that comfort foods are a lot more about how they taste. Hmm. and how they make you feel or like what the weather is outside like you know if it's raining you want a bowl of soup or something but nostalgic foods are about childhood about development Mm -hmm. about the experiences you had when you were young yes social security yes there's actually this really interesting study where they tried to use nostalgia to get people to stop smoking they tried to tell them like okay think about how you used to be before smoking do you miss that self and they tried to use that framework to get people to slowly been smoking um, did it work i mean it is only one study mm-hmm. you know i don't know if there's been more studies yeah on they that. only so had I one can't. cigarette <laughs> so i can't i can't they were actually like, they sorry. one cigarette and one guy <laughs> <laughs> wasn't an exhaustive study I'm so sorry. <laughs> well let me ask you this um i i we should not have spoken about a, smoking <laughs> you know dennis johnson the author he said that pack of cigarettes is like a a pack of 20 friends that you're never alone and I think that has something to do with that feeling what you're talking about. Oh, the coping part, the coping yeah. mechanism yeah. part. Yeah. It might you, what's the words we're studying today? Capital N, nostalgia. Capital N. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this. No. Um, Hetvi, because the way that you and I got connected was through your study of consciousness. Wow. How does nostalgia connect to that? Which is a very rich field for study and opinion, obviously. 
yeah yeah we got connected through my interest in consciousness because the person who had been on your podcast before shimon he's on my committee that i work with and the reason why nostalgia and consciousness connect and i think any research well done um can connect to consciousness is because of this really fancy word which i'm going to throw out there it's called qualia but all it means is just the subjective experience of being like observing yourself of just yeah of just being like okay. the like any like moment of awareness or vision or taste or smell or like just that experience of it and the reason why i love nostalgia and i study it is because i think it is such an interesting experience like i'm very interested in how people live nostalgia so like if i was to put a trigger in front of you like if i was to play a dylan song right now what would happen to you like you know that phenomena yeah. of you reliving yeah, it yeah it's like a dimension it's a destination and like what's really interesting is how it combines so many different things it combines your senses because it's auditory you know it combines your memory and your like self identity because it's a part of who you are and physically uh, if you get the yeah, goosebumps and, and it's embodied exactly yeah. like it's it's something you can also feel in your body and so i think i've always used nostalgia as a really cool topic of interest because it has all this really interesting intersection with topics all i'm interested in and so it, for me it also offers me a window to study all of these in a realm that is so mm-hmm. personal to the individual but also very common across how we all feel it but one of the things i wanted to say which involves consciousness which involves nostalgia is mm-hmm. that when i am doing press for this bob dylan live at royal albert hall from 1966 recording with different journalists one of the things that i've noticed that i've been saying is that because of the the sort of spell that a song can provide someone just some call it mm-hmm. holy spirit some call it i don't know but there's something that connects us all that line that thread that human thread and that that consciousness is available to us all day long around the world but do we have a way to connect in i think through music is the easiest way but so that's why i did this record that makes sense because i believe that people around the world people that are old old as my parents from their 80s to my age would love to hear it and i think they have kids and grandkids now so we need that consciousness you know for our planet for our rights our women's rights we still don't have equal rights in this country you know and i believe that 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 consciousness that nostalgia and that consciousness that's why i put out this record and like i think so you and i have very similar motivations in this one way where i've started something it's called the community nostalgia initiative and it's a little bit like what you are talking about where i wanted to create a space where people could share their experiences of food nostalgia and we're asking people you know what submit an art piece that captures your experience of nostalgia it can be anything a sculpture a painting a sketch who are you asking everyone on campus it can be oh. faculty staff and i mean oh, outsiders are more so than cool. welcome but like the whole goal of that was to be like you know what we all feel this yeah. but in such different ways mm-hmm. let's come together exhibit those ways yeah communicate about yeah. it yeah um and like share our distinct experiences of mm-hmm. the same emotion mm-hmm. 
And what's really interesting to me is that it seems like you're celebrating nostalgia and celebrating the experience, drawing people to it. And like I said, there's this growing body of evidence that it actually has health benefits. Yet I just feel as though so often we're being browbeat, this idea is being drummed into us, be present, don't live in the past. So as a nostalgia researcher and like what you're doing with this initiative, how can you speak to that? Is it possible, I'm going to interject, is it possible that with any horror to transform it with nostalgia, to transform the survival of the horror into something beautiful, that's perhaps why it's healthy. So, okay, I'm going to address Sean's point before yours, man. Sorry. <laughs> Never. Are you mad at me? <laughs> uh, so that is a really good point that you bring up because nostalgia has been highly correlated, especially waves of nostalgia have been highly correlated with times of global displacement. So the way nostalgia was founded or started, it was actually thought of to be a disease. In 1688, I know, there was a doctor in Switzerland, his name is uh, Johannes Hopper. Switzerland. Uh, and he was like, he was looking at all these Swiss soldiers who were displaced from their home and he was like, why are they all obsessed with going home? Like, what is their singular obsession about going home? And so he came up with this word and he called it nostalgia, which is a Greek word, but not yeah. from Greece at all. I didn't know um, that. Yeah, and so it started as a disease. And the way they used to treat it was with opium, with leeches. Yeah, with addiction. But the best medication, they said, was to go back home. They were literally like, return home. And of course, now for us, it's no longer a disease. But the big thing that is still common is that displacement thing we keep coming back to. After COVID, there was a surge in nostalgia because, you know, yeah. people were like, times before COVID were so much better or like things were less volatile or, yeah. you know, to cite a really bad example, but also really accurate example is anytime a big group of people gets displaced from their home. Mm. So like the India-Pakistan partition, mm. um, the crisis going on in the Middle East right now that such large-scale displacements can really create this collective experience of my homeland and yeah. like, you know, what is happening to my homeland. And that are times when nostalgia is super powerful because it helps you maintain that connection to your past. And because genetic code, we have memory attached to our... Uh, there is methylation. DNA, so uh, what's that word? Methylation? But, uh, yes. So actually... I know that um, guy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so DNA methylation is when there are changes to your genetic code because of your experience with the environment. And it's been studied in rats and stuff. And there's also demethylation, which is when those changes go away with time and so on. Uh, but wow. that was just an offshoot of the genetic code thing she was saying. But the one thing I did want to stress is something that I think everyone should know is that mm. as a scientist, personally, I am not really convinced by the evidence that everyone should nostalgize. Yes, nostalgia like really helps with social connection. It really helps with like maintaining your identity when things have changed for you. But the actual benefits of it on your well-being are very conditional on like how nostalgic you are as a person in everyday life. Mm -hmm. And those who are more nostalgic, the benefits are stronger for them. Mm. But that's the same thing as like, you know, those who exercise more, the benefits are better for them. You <laughs> yeah, know? that makes sense. Um, so that, that's that small caveat. Um, but what's important is that if you think about it, if you just existed in this moment and the past was not into play at all, you would have no identity. 
if you just lived moment oh, wow. to moment i see what you're saying and the past didn't exist you would have no identity and like identity wow. really links the past and the present and that's why nostalgia has such a strong effect on you on your identity i'm curious are there any of your research do you know people and have some interesting information about ai there's nothing as far as i know on ai and nostalgia that but yeah nostalgia is something that's currently being studied across lots of different disciplines and there is this really interesting thing about mm. why do people like to play video games that are so old mm-hmm. and the reason why people think so the media researchers they say nostalgia or like why do people like to um have record players even though we don't need record players anymore maybe because of the nostalgia it's actually one thing that i wanted to ask you which i'd been thinking about mm-hmm. are you like nostalgic at all for how music used to be made versus how absolutely. it's made now absolutely yeah absolutely i did this record called sun s u n back in whatever it took me 4 years to get it done i played every sound you hear on that thing in doing that record i felt so detached mm-hmm. cuz it was digital everything on that record uh, well i mean the amp i had some things that i did that were you know recorded and stuff but inside of all this tissue and stuff i'm bone i'm bone and in my head there's that fatty brain there's still the bone and when you press the piano the vibration goes through your bone and mm-hmm. it circulates in your brain same as a guitar the vibration of the the wood in your hand and your body against your rib that bone the vibration you kind of become the song in a way and the voice kind of becomes almost a harmony of the music but in the what was your question are you nostalgic for how music used to be made yes yes whatever your question was yes so are you like so when you recreated this album ah. did you try to stick to the way music used to be made Absolutely. when you were doing it Absolutely. Does nostalgia always have to be a positive thing? Not at all. We I mean, know like, that it not, isn't. Yeah, not at all. I you well, know like it's actually so know. interesting that as a culture the US is pushing towards always trying to be happy mm. or like you know yeah. always trying to be positive and stuff and I somehow nostalgia is being swept with that tide where I know I understand that it started as a disease but everyone is trying really hard to show that it's a good thing that it's a positive thing. But the one thing that I always that I've always felt is that there can't be bittersweet without bitter. And nostalgia mm-hmm. is bittersweet. You know, it is that that mourning that loss of what has no longer with you but also cherishing it like putting it up on a pedestal even uh like the same woman that I was telling about Svetlana Boyam she said nostalgia is history without guilt wow and, and you know like wow. it makes sense because if i think about the times that i was nostalgic for they seem so happy and stuff but i know for a fact that at those times other things were also going on in my life that yeah. sucked but looking back on it now because i miss it i'm no longer with it I look at it with these rose colored glasses yeah. and I'm like oh well, that's it was a such a great time. Exactly it is yeah. that's the thing. So it's both mourning mm-hmm. and joy and that's yeah. what makes it such a that fun emotion. You survived emotion. it and that you're mm-hmm. conscious today to reflect on it as being like a lesson a learned lesson in that pain in that struggle finding that value. Well that's what you talk about is the meaning. This idea of meaningfulness comes up a lot in the research. Can you talk about that? Mm-hmm. Sean just alluded to that. So meaningfulness it goes back to what we were talking about with the identity 
and you know like how it becomes a part of your identity these life experiences that you've had and the one thing that does come up in research is you know people look into how nostalgia can increase your meaningfulness in life or you know they talk about how it makes you feel like you have a purpose or you belong and so on mm-hmm. but again it's one of those things that works better for people who are just generally high in nostalgia but the interesting thing is that the one thing that it does which i it i believe it's one of its underlying mechanisms is the social connectedness so the way it's able to boost your meaning is because you know it almost reminds you that you have people you love Like you know when you're feeling down in the dumps and you're like suddenly nostalgic you're like okay you know what I've like I've had a good life that yeah. I have I've grown up a lot things have changed there are people that I love and nostalgia sometimes reminds you of that Could I say something only cuz she had mentioned America and you mentioned about being happy and you mentioned those things I wanted to just interject that as an American also I feel that nostalgia in this country i think is marketed thank you mm-hmm. i'm so glad you brought it up because one of the things that i convinced everyone that i it's worthwhile to study nostalgia is because i used to tell them that i don't know if you know this but marketers use nostalgia they use it to its extreme extent to make sure that you buy products mm. because you are emotionally invested in them So stuff like cereal packets have families on them because it makes you reminds you of your childhood and like growing up with your parents and stuff. And the biggest thing that I actually saw some of my talks with is that nostalgia is anyways being used to guide so many of our behaviors as consumers mm-hmm. in a capitalistic society. Why not study it on the science side? Mm-hmm. You know, why not study how it works? why it works the way it does? Mm-hmm. And then we can make an informed decision about okay, you know what? I can recognize that they're trying to get me and I'm yeah. not going to fall for it. And that. it's all <laughs> you know? chemicals or it's all, you know, horribly horrible conditions for animals to get those goods, those leather goods or whatever it is, you know, the McDonald's, the 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 warm pancake sizzling with the thing and the makes you feel like you're like with grandma. Yeah. But that's why it's interesting because then you can sometimes start thinking, okay, if I feed my kids foods that are good for them, but also like i create such a good experience around that food yeah eating with family eating together being happy when they grow up they might actually want to crave it and yeah. might end up eating something that's good for them but also that they love but again this is just one of the mechanisms and hypotheses that we're working with this so i think cool. this is how it works i was going to ask you shan um were there like any periods in your life where you were more nostalgic than others <sighs> Because yeah, there's like yeah, there's I think as a kid when things started, you know, in the home got a little like, you know, my stability was kind of sh- broken up. I used to always think I wish I was 6, I wish I was 6. Mm. I used to think about that all the time. And that was just because I remember there was a a knowing me and then there was like an unknowing me and I really craved for that Lobo- I used to call it the lobotomized me because the pain of knowing mm-hmm. was so enormous to me like it was hard to function you know without feeling sorrow so I preferred to always wish that I could go back to being six when I was like in a tree pretending I was a gorilla and trees don't hang out in gorillas we all know that <laughs> but there I was 
I have a 10th grade education. I failed. There's a lot of people, I think, with the, the, the economic disparity in this mm -hmm. country. A lot of people don't have that education. And, and they'll unfortunately never see the inside of a university or a professor or never know what their gifts are never get those grades, never have that. So it'd be cool to all this information y'all have just to share it with some basic bitches. I, no, I mean, like that That was honestly the biggest reason why I wanted to do this podcast is because I'm a very strong supporter of open science. Is that a thing? I, I, it is actually a growing movement now where mm. we're trying to make sure that the way we do science, everyone can understand it. We're trying to do more communication with the general public. Mm. But my biggest thing has always been what I study is people. If I can't tell the people that I study what it is that I'm studying, I've yeah. kind of failed. What's the point? As a scientist. Yeah, that makes um, sense. If I'm trying to understand who they are and how they work, of course, I do it also out of like personal curiosity. Mm -hmm. But one of my biggest goals, and that's also something that actually my lab has also taught me really well, is community outreach. That, mm -hmm. you know, our science is not supposed to just be isolated to the lab. Yeah. There's like people that we can get involved, even if it doesn't directly affect them. Knowledge is a very powerful thing. Like education Huge. has lifted a lot of people that I know, including myself, out of like situations that they might not want to be in. And I want to be able to pass it on. That's yeah. Cool. That's why it's important to talk about these things in a manner that everyone can understand, right? That is a direct quote from, uh, do you know the song Cult of Personality by Living Color? Oh yeah, I love them. Well, you know, the opening has that Malcolm X quote, but you pretty much just directly quoted that heavy. Yeah. That's the goal, baby. Um, yeah. Isn't there something called vicarious nostalgia? There is, yeah, there, there is, which is, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a very interesting phenomena. Um, it's nostalgia when, you know, if your parents are telling you a tale from when your great grandparents were alive. My grandmother, yeah. And you've never lived it. But, but I can you wish, see it. Yeah, exactly. I you can, wish yeah. you could be there. You yeah. wish you could live it again. Yeah. That's vicarious nostalgia. Like it's okay. feeling nostalgia for like an experience you okay. haven't lived. And wow. it's, you know, it's almost like, like Cleopatra did not kill herself. I believe I'm going yeah. to shift. I don't shift. know if that's nostalgia, but... Or the truth that needs <laughs> to be uncovered. And I'm sure it's written down in some fact book that well, they Well, we're going to find it. We're going to have you back on with an archaeologist, an Egyptologist. Oh, that'd be so fun. Shakti, Shakti! We're going to get you in some Let's khakis go. and a safari hat and a pickaxe. You're going to find that shit. Nah. Well, listen, I can't thank you both enough for doing this. Thank you so much. Oh, we had such a good time. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so Bye, y'all. Be sure to check out Sean's latest album, Cat Power Sings Dylan, out now on Domino Records. And you can catch her performing it in its entirety live on tour this winter. The tour kicks off at Carnegie Hall in New York on Valentine's Day and wraps up at London's Palladium on May 1st. For tickets and more information, please visit catpowermusic.com. To keep up to date with Hetvi, you can visit her website, hetvidoshi.com. And to learn more about the Community Nostalgia Initiative, please visit thecommunitynostalgiaproject.com, beginning February 2024. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram. Social media manager is Bailey Constis. Location engineer, Chris Villapeg and digital producer is Keenan Cush. Special thanks to Isaac Brock, 
Shimon Edelman, Ken Weinstein, Harper Beatty, and Jake Owen for helping make today's episode possible. If you like the show, the best way you can support us is to give us a review, tell a friend about Sing for Science, and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. For more information, go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening. Thank you.